with me to Job chapter 38. In the church Bible, it's page 538. And the larger print Bible is 832. And we're going to read from chapter 38, verse 1, through to chapter 40, verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with glass with grass. Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? 
Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the cockerel understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear the driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it in the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet, when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side along with a flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, it snorts, aha, It catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food. Its eyes detect it from afar. Its young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there it is. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. 
Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. This is God's word. Had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. Those are the words of King Alfonso X of Spain. He was around in the 13th century. But King Alfonso was not the first or the last person to think he could improve on God's way of doing things. As we've read through this book, we have heard Job's useful hints for the better ordering of God's universe. I suppose most of us have had those kind of moments, if we're honest. Moments when we just wish God had asked us before he went and did something or other. We could have steered him in a better direction. At least we imagine we could. But in the passage we just read, God challenges Job and he challenges us. Let's think this through. Let's put your theory to the test. And God does that by taking us on a tour of his creation. And all of its complexity and all of its variety. And at the end, God asks, do you still have those useful hints for me? Do you want to share them? Do you still want a go at being God of all creation? But before we take this tour, by looking at this passage more closely, we need to pay attention to how all of this is introduced for us. Since the early days of Job's trouble, what Job wanted most was a meeting with God. A chance for Job to make his case and call God to account. Job has come back to that again and again. It's what he wanted, but at the same time, it was also a frightening prospect for Job. He's quite sure that he's in the right, but he's also worried God would just blow him away if they met. In chapter 9, Job said, even if I got to meet God, he would crush me with a storm. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. But still, in spite of his fear, Job kept demanding a meeting. In chapter 31, his last speech, Job said, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. And now, finally, Job gets his wish. But it doesn't turn out at all like Job expected. The thing he feared doesn't happen. God doesn't blow him away. But the thing Job hoped for doesn't happen either. Job does not ever share his useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. Instead, he bows in humility. And as we'll see next week, after God's second speech, Job ends up repenting of his attitude. Meeting God turns out to be less scary 
but more humbling than Job had ever imagined. As we read these chapters, you'll have noticed they take us far and wide. But the opening verses are the key to it all. Look again at the beginning of chapter 38. Verse 2 helps us to understand what's going on. God asks in chapter 38, verse 2, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Another way to translate that would be, Who is this that darkens my counsel in words without understanding? God's counsel is the way he has ordered the world and the way he governs the world. So it's a bit more than just his plans. It's how he has set things up and how he organizes and does things. God says Job has darkened or obscured God's counsel. In other words, Job has confused the whole issue by talking without understanding. And clearly, God is not pleased about that. That's why he speaks to Job out of a storm. And yet, God does not blow Job away. He doesn't crush him. He doesn't even read Job the riot act. He doesn't lecture him. He asks him questions. Some people have come to these chapters and they have assumed God here is battering Job into submission firing these words at him like a machine gun. But I don't think that's the tone at all. Yes, this is definitely not a light-hearted situation. In verse 3, God says, brace yourself like a man. This is going to be an intense experience for Job. But it is not going to be destructive. Not if Job will consider what God asks him to consider. That's the point of the questions. God wants Job to think through what he's about to hear. The aim is not to destroy Job, it is to enlarge Job's vision of God. As Job thinks through God's questions, and there are dozens of questions, as Job considers them, he will realize they all have exactly the same answer. The answer is, No, God, that's not true of me, but it is true of you. And as you and I listen with Job, what God intends is not to crush us. It is to enlarge our vision of him and enlarge our trust in him. In this first speech, God invites Job to consider two aspects of creation. The wild earth and the wild life on earth. First of all, God is God of the wild earth. Look at chapter 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. 
Job was not the architect and builder of the earth. God was. God designed it carefully. He constructed it carefully. It is ordered as God intended it to be ordered. It works as God intended it to work. And those who are privileged to see it all take shape, the morning stars and the angels, they knew a good thing when they saw it. They shouted for joy. They rejoiced in God's counsel. They applauded how God set up the world and how he governs it. Gerard Manley Hopkins said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. God's grandeur is what electrifies creation. The life of God makes creation live. But at this point, maybe a question has already come into our minds. It probably came to Job's mind as well. Yes, but what about evil and suffering? What about the darkness on God's earth? The applauding angels didn't see that, did they? That wasn't included in God's counsel, was it? Surely that was an unforeseen accident. God immediately answers that question. He tells us he is God of all this wild earth. The darkness as well as the light. The first part of creation God mentions is the sea. And what you and I need to know is in the ancient world, the sea was a place of real danger. People who went to sea very often didn't come back. They were lost. And invaders came from the sea to steal your crops and your children and your wives. And so the sea became symbolic of chaos and danger and evil. It is used that way throughout the Bible, particularly in the sections of poetry and visions. We find it in the poetry of the Psalms. We find it in the visions of Daniel. In those visions, beasts emerge from a churning sea. In the book of Revelation, John sees a ten-horned, seven-headed beast coming out of the sea. In poetry and in vision, the sea unleashes danger and evil. That is to be understood here as we read this passage. When God talks about the sea, he's dealing head-on with the presence of evil in his world. Is it part of God's counsel? Does God govern it like he governs the good things? Look at verse 8. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther? Here is where your proud waves halt. The sea is described like a baby bursting out of the womb. 
In other words, it is no more of a threat to God than a boisterous toddler would be. God can set limits for the sea and for evil as easily as for a toddler. We might use a playpen or a stair gate to limit a toddler. And in creation, cliffs and coastlines set limits on the sea. The sea can smash into those doors and bars with great force, sometimes with the force of a tsunami. But in the end, its proud waves have to halt. The sea cannot cover the earth. And neither can evil. God does not explain why he allows evil a place on his earth. But he assures us, it is not a surprise to me. It didn't somehow sneak under the fence and get into my world without me knowing. And it does not rampage across my world without my permission. No, even evil is part of my counsel. It has a place in how I have ordered and how I govern this world. Even disorder has its place in my ordered world. But God says, I have fixed limits for it. You can be sure of that. It may go so far, but no farther. Then God moves our attention from the sea to the sunrise. He assures us, not only is evil limited in its reach, it's limited in time. It has an end, as surely as the darkness of night has an end. Look at verse 12. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. If the sea is one symbol of evil, the darkness is another. Sinful deeds in the Bible are called the deeds of darkness. Darkness is the time for theft and everything else that people want to hide. And God says, I command the sunrise that brings a stop to the darkness. In these verses, the earth taking shape is a way of talking about that time when morning light begins to grow. The world goes from dark to gray to bright daylight. Things begin to be seen and recognized. And the wicked have to stop their deeds of darkness. Their rebellious behavior has to stop. Their upraised, defiant arm is broken by the light. And the implication is that one day there will be an ultimate sunrise. There will be a final end to evil on God's earth. One writer explains it like this. These verses are a vivid, poetic way of saying that every time the sun rises... It is evidence that there is a judgment to come. Every time the light is switched on in creation, it reassures us that darkness will not last forever. 
Each new day is cosmic proof that evil has no enduring place in the created order. Sure, it must be part of this creation for now. It has a place in God's purposes, albeit a strictly limited one. But it will not be with us forever. God moves on with this tour of his earth. He leads us next to the extreme edges of his world, the places none of us will ever see. And he takes us there to assure us, even there, his counsel prevails. Even the inaccessible places are ordered and governed by God. Look at verse 16. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Even today, with all of our expertise, vast areas of the ocean floor remain unexplored down in what's called the twilight zone, and below that, the midnight zone of the ocean. When the Malaysia Airlines flight went down a few years ago, you probably remember that, we were told that if it had sunk in the ocean, it could take years to locate the wreckage, if it could be located at all in those deep places of the ocean. God says... I know those recesses of the deep. I set those deep, dark places in their place. My counsel prevails even there. I have ordered those places and I govern them too. And what about that even darker place? What about the gates of death? Have you been there, God says? Because my counsel prevails there too. The point is, if God's counsel stretches to those extreme places, there can be no place that's beyond his counsel. There is no dark corner in your life that escapes God's knowledge or God's power. He has measured it He has set limits to it. And in his time, God's light will take that darkness away. And when we consider the gates of death, we need to know God owns them. In fact, we know what Job could not know. We know that one day, God himself went through the gates of death. And he returned. Proving that even the darkest place is governed by God. When you and I belong to the risen Jesus, we belong to the one who owns the gates of death. We can go there without fear. In the verses that follow, God turns our attention from the depths up to the heights to the storehouses in the sky. 
His counsel prevails, he says, over the rain and the dew that bring life and the snow and the hail that bring death. Even the places that humans avoid are carefully tended by God. Look at verse 26. God's counsel will water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Who needs that grass? What is the point of beautiful flowers in a place no one ever goes? God knows. He orders and he governs the places we ignore. The next verses tell us God's plans prevail when it comes to the wind and the lightning, the constellations of stars in the sky. In poetic language, God describes how he governs all these. His counsel prevails in the processes and the laws of nature. And in all this, God is not berating Job. He's inviting him. And he's inviting us to consider the question. Were we the architects of this earth? Did we carry out the surveying work? Did we draw up the blueprints? Did we do the construction work? Do we govern at every moment of the day? Does all of its wildness answer to us? Do we set the limits on its wildness? Do we own the gates of death as well as the uninhabited desert? No. But God does. He is God of the light and the darkness, the dew and the hail. So can't we trust that every mystery we face is not mysterious to him? Can't we trust that even the deepest darkness somehow fits within his wise counsel? Can't we trust that disorder somehow plays a part in his eternal order? So much so that the morning stars sang with approval. The angels shouted for joy when they saw God's counsel take shape. In the second part of this speech, God shows himself to be not just God of the wild earth, but also God of the wild life. God of the predator and the prey, the strong and the weak, and the foolish. God mentions lots of animals. And these are not the kind of animals you would find on a farm. You would not take any of these animals for a walk. These guys live outside of our domesticated existence. If you've watched any of the Planet Earth series on the BBC recently, then you are well prepared for what God describes next. The footage on those programs is just wonderful. It makes us wonder when we watch it at the richness of life on earth and the violence and the hardship of life on this earth. 
here Job gets his own personal version of planet Earth. Except his tour guide is not David Attenborough. It's God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And God starts with the king of the wildlife. Look down to verse 39. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven? When it's young, cry out to God and wander about for lack of food. God points to the mighty lion and the much less mighty raven. And immediately, we're faced with the issue of life and death. If these mighty lions are going to live, if this less mighty raven and her chicks are going to live, then something else has to die. If the lions don't tear apart a weaker animal, then the lions starve. This principle is stitched into the fabric of nature. It's a reality from the top to the bottom of the food chain. If you're going to live, something else has to die. Every meal that you eat costs something else its life. It might have been a cow or it might have been a lettuce. Maybe you feasted on a burger or maybe a salad. But the reality is the same. For you to go on living, something else had to die. There is no alternative. This is part of God's counsel. It's part of how he has ordered and how he governs the world. Christopher Ashe says, In our world, if the lion were to lie down with the lamb, there would be a lot of starving lion cubs. We live in a world in which predation and starvation are the only alternatives. God has started out this section by showing how he provides for the predator. So then, does he not care about the prey? Look at chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. These verses are describing the prey. Goats and deer. Is God careless about them? No, he shows equal care for the life of the prey. He doesn't order and govern this world like a cold-hearted manager. He watches the pregnant ones like an expectant parent, counting the days until the new life appears. God is as invested in the life of the prey as he is in the life of the predator. At the end of his speech here, God will return to focus on predator and prey. But now he moves to the freedom of all these wild things. Illustrated 
by the wild donkey, first of all, in verses 5 to 8. The wild donkey goes where it pleases. But the donkey's freedom is not outside God's counsel. Next comes the wild ox, verses 9 to 12. Now this is not the kind of ox that comes into our minds. A big dopey thing. The wild ox is a ferocious beast. It's six feet across at the shoulders with deadly horns. God asks Job, could you pat this guy on the head? Could you get him into a harness to plow your farm for you? No chance. He does what he pleases. He works for no one, but he is not outside my counsel. I can harness his wild power. And then we move from the terrifying to the ridiculous. The ostrich in verses 13 to 18. She flaps her wings joyfully, but she can't fly. She's happy and very, very dim. She lays her eggs where they're likely to get trampled. Why? Because, verse 17, God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. But he did give her speed, verse 18. When she spreads her feather to run, she laughs at horse and rider. So what's the point of this happy, foolish, fast creature? God knows. Even the foolish things have a place in his counsel. He orders and he governs them as well. Then comes the war horse in verses 19 to 25. The tank of the ancient world. His passion is to race towards danger. That's what he lives for. Verse 19. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, it snorts. Aha! It catches the scent of battle from afar. The shout of commanders and the battle cry. This wild thing is in a harness. But only so he can get in on the action. He has not been humbled by human beings. They're just his ticket for a good fight. His purpose is to destroy. He lives for the command to charge. God ends his tour by returning to predator and prey. Verse 26. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? 
It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. The rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food. Its eyes detect it from afar. Its young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there it is. This final scene reminds us we are not watching a Disney version of the created world. God leaves us with a lingering shot of eaglets gorging on flesh, blood dripping from their beaks. And in verse 27, God asks, this gory picture, it doesn't take place at your command, does it, Job? I'm in command of this process where life for some comes from the death of others. This is part of my counsel too. I am Lord of all creation, not just the sweet and sunny bits. I govern the claws and the teeth and the blood just as much as the waterfalls and the rainbows. God's asking, could you govern such a complex world, Job? Could you do it in such a way that when the morning stars and the angels see it, they sing and shout for joy? They applaud what they see because they see I have made no mistakes. I have got nothing wrong. When we think of this last picture, it is hard as we see death that brings life. It's hard not to be reminded that one day God himself would die so others could live. When God made suffering and death part of his counsel, he did not stand aloof from it. He invested himself in it. He committed his own blood and flesh to be part of the picture. God the Son came to be not the predator, but the prey, so we could have life. God has more yet to say about his creation. Next week we'll listen to a second speech. But for now, he pauses and he asks for a response from Job. Chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. As we hear this, we have to ask, as amazing as all this has been, this grand tour of creation, what does it have to do with Job's situation? God has not answered any of Job's questions. He has given no explanation of what went on in heaven back in chapters 1 and 2. There's no answer here as to why Job has gone through all he has gone through. Instead, God has pointed out what essentially Job already knew. God is the creator and sustainer of all. So how is all of this relevant to Job? 
Well, Job has been shown God's ordering and government of the wide, wild world. The height and the depth and the width of God's counsel. And now, Job is to consider his own experience in the light of that big picture. In the light of the fact that Job is not just another animal. He's a human being made in God's image. And if God orders and governs the lives of the ostrich and the mountain goat, if he deals wisely and well with the lion and the eagle, surely he is dealing wisely with Job too. Christopher Ashe sums it up like this. Amazingly and soberingly, to the man whose wealth God has confiscated, whose family God has taken away, whose greatness God has removed, and whose health God has ruined, God says, in summary, I have made no mistake. I know exactly what I am doing in your life and in every detail of the government of the world. My counsel is perfect. I have got nothing wrong. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. What about us? If all that we have seen has its place in God's perfect counsel, if even the gates of death have their place, can we not trust that our circumstances also have their place in God's counsel? That our lives are part of the picture. This picture that made the morning stars sing and the angels shout for joy. And if God himself entered into this wild creation, if he went through life and death, life at Christmas, death at Easter, then will you not trust him with your own life and death? Let's respond to God's word as we sing together, Behold our God.